Hello. And welcome to another episode of Saturday the 14th. I am Maggie. And I am Maddie. And we are here to talk to you today about ghosts in your house. Demons, technically. Demons in your house. Sometimes you just gotta have those demons. Sometimes there are demons in your house, and the only thing that you can do about it is have your shithead boyfriend strap on a movie camera and endlessly harass you and the demon until you murder him. The thing is, I don't think that he was a shithead in the beginning of the movie. I think he became shittier yeah. and shittier as the movie went on. I wonder if it was kind of like a Horcrux thing going on where he his like exposure to the demon made him worse. Maybe. I think that it's sort of like a latent um, bro shittiness, you know? I think that's possible. I think where it's, it's also, like it really didn't come out in full force until things got dire. It also could be that the demon makes things more stressful and the stress brings out the worst in them. And then them being worse people makes the demon stronger. It's kind of like a never-ending cycle of sadness. Yeah, it's sort of like when you have a baby uh, and it makes things really difficult on the marriage because the baby's screaming all the time. But instead of the baby, it's a demon. And instead of growing up, it possesses your girlfriend and then she murders you. Don't have a baby to save your marriage. Don't have a demon to save your relationship. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I'm sure that you guys could pick up on it either by the title of this episode or by the fact that we've been talking about it for five or however many minutes this has been. Feels like a million years. Honestly, who knows? It's been three minutes. I don't know how long time <laughs> takes. Not important. We're talking about <laughs> paranormal activity. <laughs> Um, Blair Witch's younger, punkier cousin. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little bit fresher. It's a little bit more edgy. Um, it's a little bit more vague. It's a lot cheaper. It's much cheaper. And you don't get motion sick watching it. Um, no, you really don't. Not for most of it, anyway. Um, all right, so I'm sure that most of you guys, if you like horror, which I assume you do, because why else would you be listening to this? Because they love us. Because of your deep love for us. Because of my inherent comedic timing. Yes, that's definitely what and it is. And my puns. I would say that we probably have like 40% of our listening audience is here for the puns. I mean, aren't we all? I am. That's why That's I'm the here. only reason I'm here. I would leave if you stopped making puns. Good. So. I won't. You know. Good. Now I feel a lot of pressure to make yeah, puns. Yeah, you fucking better. <laughs> All right, so we are talking about paranormal activity, obviously. Um, so this was originally released in 2007, um, but it wasn't released as like a wide theatrical release until 2009. So it first came out at Screamfest, um, but if you saw it in theaters, you probably saw it in 2009. And we'll get into the details of that later because it is a very interesting story as to how this got to theaters. It is. Um, this movie was directed, written, and edited by Oren Pelly. Yeah, this guy really, I mean, he'd never made a movie before. He was a um, video game designer. Yeah. And he did the whole thing himself, which is bonkers. He's also a software engineer, kind of. Like, he was really technical, so he was talking about how he was really good with the computers, and he was able to teach himself how to do, like, all the VFX and which stuff Which is crazy. Like I mean, this is not a super VFX heavy movie but like that's still a lot to do by yourself Definitely. if you've never done it before especially if you watch the director's cut it has like a lot more vfx things going on is yeah. my understanding i have not watched the director's cut but i, I read a lot either. about it okay cool that's almost as good this movie stars katie featherson as katie mika sloat as mika really original here yep and then Oren Pelly actually makes an appearance here yes his name is not Oren though i don't remember what his character's name is no he's the doctor yeah um Dr. Fredericks. Yeah. That's he fun. only shows up for like two very brief scenes. Yeah. But I didn't, he actually acts pretty damn well. Yeah, he was good. I thought he was pretty good. 
I mean, honestly, all of them were, were good. They all did go really well, yeah. Yeah. Um, but fun fact, uh, the two main stars, Mika and Katie, were only paid $500 for this. Which seems insane in retrospect, but there's really no way that anyone could have expected that this would blow up the way that it did. Because, I mean, even as things were moving along, it seems unlikely at every point that it would have done as well as it did. It also was only seven days of filming. Yeah. So which is not like bad. a long arduous experience. Plus, I think they both have cameos in the next one, so I assume that they got paid a little bit more for that. I hope so. Yeah. And then my favorite fun fact of the day, I have a lot of fun facts for you today. I love fun facts. Is um, So Mika actually like went to school and did film in college, and so he literally shoots this movie because he's carrying around the camera the entire time. Right. But he was a cameraman in college, (laughs) and so uh, the director had to tell him to film less well because it looked too nice. That's amazing. And it's funny because then like when the movie came out, a lot of people were like, oh, this was like filmed really well. Like you must have had a professional cameraman. And like it kind of was a cameraman he sort a little of bit. did, but not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, really funny. Yeah. And of course, this was produced by um, someone we are a big fan of here on the podcast. Ow, ow. Jason Blum, who uh, having passed on Blair Witch Project, didn't make the same mistake twice. <laughs> yes, no, he was all about making sure he got a piece of this, and I think he's probably very happy that he did. And speaking about what he got a piece of, yeah, this is a big deal in terms of budget and box office. Yeah, so this movie was made for $15,000. Which is inspiring. It's less than... Blair Witch Project. Blair, Blair, Blair Witch Project, Project was 50, in the 30s, I, I think. Thought. Somewhere eh, in there. It's, it's hard, hard to get an exact 50. number. But yeah, this was made for 15000 because he literally bought a camera. He used his own house. He did all of the editing, all of the VFX, all the sound effects, everything himself. Yeah. Apparently, a big part of the budget was that he had to decorate his house well enough to make it believable that somebody actually lived because <laughs> he just moved in. That's amazing. But yeah, this movie ended up Killing it in the box office. Yeah, it made $193.4 million. Which makes it the most profitable film ever made with a 414,000% return on investment. That's... I it That just doesn't happen. And that like, doesn't include the fact that there are five sequels? Yeah, it is so hard to explain. And, I mean, we'll talk again about this later on because most of this episode is actually going to be about this movie getting made and then getting distributed, which was the most incredible part of it, and the marketing behind that. I remember the marketing campaign, like, very vividly because yeah. I was... So, I was just starting my marketing degree undergrad and it was freshman year of college that this came out for us and it was really exciting i wanted this movie to come to us i hit the demand button yeah and so you're why we got to see that movie at 2 p.m on a saturday (laughs) yes and it was scary then and it's still scary now this is actually a kind of a special episode for us because maddie and i i think we've mentioned this on the podcast before we were roommates our freshman year and this came out our freshman year of college it came out uh, in Boston, probably two months after we started living together. Something like that, Because yeah. it would have been October or November. And so we lived, uh, we went to Emerson in Boston right by the Common. There was a big AMC theater right on the Common. Lowe's. AMC Lowe's. Yep. And one of the first things that we did, we went with uh, two of our friends, both of whom were named Mark. 
Uh, we went in the middle of the day, weeks after it had been out. Oh, yeah. No one was there. I think there was maybe one other person, and we annoyed him so much that he left. Yeah. We were very obnoxious. But I thought this movie was going to be too scary to watch in theaters. And yes. so our dear friends would start rapping every time it got too scary. Specifically, it was every time it felt like it was getting too scary and Maddie seemed like she was getting afraid, we would sing Get Low by Lil John. Yep. <laughs> it was a beautiful moment. It was wonderful. I was not scared because I was spending my my entire time making sure that Maddie was not scared and also goofing around with our friends. And it's hard to watch this movie that seriously now because every time it gets scary, I just hear our friends. Ah, oh, skeet, skeet, motherfucker. That is exactly what I hear. <laughs> yes, that exact line. Um, it's a beautiful memory. I actually do have a soft spot in my heart for this movie. I do too. It just, it, it was such a nice time and I it, it was so early on and we're still friends with all of them and obviously you and I are still very good friends and it just makes <laughs> me feel, I mean... Listen, it's a business relationship now. <laughs> no. <laughs> You're going to be my maid of honor Maggie. as a business partner. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this is a little bit of a sweet friendship throwback for us as well. It is. And that's just a good movie. Honestly, it does a lot with a little, and that's really impressive. And I'm, I mean, watching it last it's night, scary. I was legitimately scared at times. It's very tense. Like, they do a good job. They do. The three people who were involved in the making of this movie. <laughs> Good job, you guys. Technically, there's four because there's the friend. Her friend who shows up. Oh, I forgot about the friend. It does seem a little mean that we didn't <laughs> list her name, but I couldn't, I, I didn't I see it on the yeah. Wikipedia page. So whatever. Um, all right, so let's get into it. Let's get into this plot. Yeah, so um, it starts off with Mika having just purchased a camera because Katie, who is his lovely girlfriend, he says they are engaged to be engaged. Which, just Which sounds like it's not a thing, but I've been there. It's a thing. Yeah. Um, she's uh, has been feeling like this thing's been following her since she was a young child, and like weird things have been happening in the house. So they buy a camera to kind of like start recording um, themselves at night and just see what's going on. Yeah. So he's kind of following her around, and they, I mean, they're cute, and their chemistry is amazing. He's kind of doing that like asshole boyfriend thing where he's like zooming in on her boobs and like talking about how hot she is, and he's like, well, pose for me, take your top off, like all sorts of like, and anything that a 20-something-year-old guy would do with his girlfriend if he had a video camera. 10 out of 10 if Paul bought a video camera for this reason. Yeah, he would absolutely. Do yes, Tim would absolutely do that as well. 100%. Yeah, it's that's... not even asshole. It's just like, it's just how boys flirt. Exactly. <laughs> um, so she's like a little bit more on edge than he is. She's like, something is happening. He's like, well, I mean, it's weird, but whatever. Yeah. So they set up the camera for the first night. And that night there were some noises. Not really much happens. But the next morning when they go down, Katie finds her car keys in the middle of the floor. Yeah. Um, and the next day, the beginning of this movie is fun. Like, yeah. they're, they're in the pool, they're kissing, they're hanging around, doing cute stuff. It's just clear they're actually, like, a happy couple. Yeah. Um, and so then the psychic, who is played by Oren Pelly, comes to visit. Dr. Fredericks. Dr. Fredericks. And he kind of asks questions about, like, what her situation is, and Micah, or Mika is not buying it. Like, he's just, he doesn't believe in any of this stuff, you can tell. No, not in the slightest. But she explains that she has been following... She's been being followed by something since she was eight years old, that she and her sister both, uh, when they were kids, felt something breathing at night. Yeah, she says that her sister would also see, like, the dark object um, and, like, hear the breathing and stuff like that, but it was always standing at the foot of Katie's bed. It never really haunted her. Right. 
Um, and then there was a fire in their family home, and they lost everything, and they moved. Yeah, and she said she doesn't think it was like had anything to do with this presence. But they never figured out what started no, it. No, the police um, did an investigation just trying to figure out what the heck happened, and they never figured it out. Yeah. So Dr. Fredericks is like, okay, here's what's up. That's a demon. Um, it feeds off of negative energy, and it is tormenting you. And don't start any lines of communication with them because demons want you to communicate with them so that they can get in there and take you. And similar to The Conjuring, he actually starts off the conversation saying, like, a lot of times this can be completely explained by things that are normal. Right. This probably isn't anything. By the end, he's like, actually, yeah, it's probably something. Yeah. And um, he refers them to a demonologist named yeah. Johan Avery. Because he's not a demonologist. He can deal with ghosts, but he doesn't know how to deal with demons. Exactly. And Katie's definitely open to the idea of seeing this demonologist, but Mika is like, don't do that. <laughs> Mika's like, please don't. Let's just not. Yeah. Um... And then on night three, as they lie down and go to sleep, in the middle of the night, the door moves on its own. Yeah, and that's the big first thing. It's like a, it's like not even a big, It's it doesn't slam. It moves like a couple of inches. No, but that's the first like, oh, shit's going down. Not yeah. just like a vague noise that could be something or could be nothing. Right. Um, and so over time, you start to see like all of these weird things happening. And some of them are little. There's noises, lights flicker, doors kind of move around on their own. But Mika's just a jerk. And he keeps, like, trying to talk to the demon, like, kind of as, like, a jerk to it. Yeah. He's not being... He doesn't do anything overt at this point in time, but he's just kind of, like, saying taunting-like things. And you kind of get the sense that he is trying to prove that it's not a problem. Yeah. He's I think trying he's trying to, to get in control of the situation. Right. Because he's a big guy and he's out of control and whatnot. And the demon is more in control and does not like being mocked. So... Um, I guess it's supposed to be the 13th night. In the yeah. middle of the night, there's this screech from downstairs. And it's really scary. And then there's a huge thud. And the and entire she, house, like, vibrates. She wakes up and she screams. She's, like, freaking out. She runs downstairs. And the chandelier downstairs, directly under their bed, is, like, swinging back and forth. Like, something has, like, smashed into it. Yeah, it's insane. And so... Um, they stay up and they're kind of freaked out for a while. But the next day, Mika's like, I know what I'll do. I'll grab this voice recorder and, like, ask questions out loud and see if anything happens. Yeah. And so nothing happens for the most part. Um, but at one point, he asks the demon if he if it wants him to use a Ouija board to contact him. And before this, Mika had talked about grabbing a Ouija board. And Katie was like, promise me you won't buy one. I don't want that in my house. And he was like, I won't buy one. Fuck off, Mika. Um, but anyway, he asks the demon this, and when he goes back and listens to it later, he can hear, like, a grunt on the recording at that question. So he's like, clearly the answer is yes. We should definitely do what the demon wants us to. Um, and so then stuff with Katie starts to get weird. On the 15th night, she stands up out of bed and just stares at Mika from her side of the bed for, like, two hours, and then she goes outside. And then when we talk about, like, the 15th night, the 13th night, that's how it's labeled on the actual right. video. We don't yeah. see every single night because it's kind of like a highlight reel of what's going on. Yeah. So it's not super plot heavy. It's just, like, here are weird things happening. Yeah, this movie is not really about the plot. It's about the tension. Yeah. That's really... But she goes outside, and Mika wakes up, and... He goes to look for her, and she's sitting outside, and he's, on like... On the swing. Yeah, and it, he, he says it's cold outside, because I think it's supposed to be, like, uh, it's supposed November, to be October, November or October, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's, like, come on, like, you gotta come inside, like, it's freezing, and she goes, no, I don't want to. And she's wearing, like, tank tops and, like, and, like shorts. shorts. Yeah. And 
he goes inside to, to get, get a blanket, blanket for her and hears this like huge bang upstairs. Yes. And then she comes back inside and she's like, what is going on? Like, what's happening? And he's like, what are you talking about? Why were you even outside? And she's like, I don't know what you mean. And they go to bed. And, and the, next, the morning, next morning they're talking and he's like asking her about what happened. She's like, I don't remember anything except for you pointing that camera with a light in my face and asking me all these questions. He's like, you don't remember standing up and staring at me because he saw on the recording. He doesn't mm-hmm. remember, like, you don't remember going outside. And we had a conversation. She's like, we talked. And he's like, yes. And so she's kind of freaked out. It's very weird. And so he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands and figure out what the problem is. And so he brings home a Ouija board. Which Katie is not happy about. No, she's fucking pissed. She's like, you said you would not bring one of those into the house. And you come and you bring like the best fucking looking Ouija board I've ever seen. And he's like, no, babe, I said I wouldn't buy a Ouija board. And I borrowed this one. And she's like, fuck you. Like, you know exactly what I meant. (laughs) She uses all this language. We are mostly quoting her. Yeah. With maybe a couple mess ups. And she's like, okay, I'm like, we're leaving. You're coming with me. Don't touch that thing, whatever. And so, so he just puts it on the table and like leaves it with a planchette on top of it. Yes. And so we in the video, you see the planchette start to move. And then you see the board catch fire. Yep. So they come home and they like see the mess and whatever. And then yeah, the next... he sees like the Ouija board and is like, oh, it looks like someone drew on it. What the fuck? Yeah. And then the next day he looks over the footage and he's like, oh, this is like worse than we thought and she's freaking out she's like we need to contact this demonologist he's like no 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 don't do that don't do that and meanwhile mika's trying to like figure out what the planchette was like saying yeah and it's something similar to like goodbye diane yeah it's the closest that he gets he can't really figure out what the word is yeah and he's trying a lot of different combinations and stuff like that and he's confused about what it could mean um so that kind of gets put on hold for a second he decides that he's gonna put baby powder across the hallway and outside the bedroom door because that way if somebody is coming in or out of the house or if there's like a physical presence then it'll make the footprints and then they'll be able to see what they're dealing with so that night they go to bed and she doesn't really seem to notice it but while you're watching like the footage you see something it kind of like opens the door a little bit and like closes yeah. the door a little bit and then it pulls back on her like yeah. her bed linens it, it doesn't there's grab kind of her cool or anything but it's sort of with like wind that'll pop up like some at one point i don't know, remember if it's here or another time there's like a wind that like happens underneath the covers yeah and there's one creepy. where it happens where it like pushes the covers off of her and then later there's one where it pushes the covers off mika so it's like a lot of cool windy things happening with the covers yeah and she apparently feels it because she wakes up and she says she feels the breathing on her neck. And they look at the floor. And there's footprints. Really, like, weird clawy footprints, Yeah, too. they're very, very demon-y. Um, and so they follow the footprints. They're freaking out, obviously. They're freaking the fuck out. Like, they, yeah. And it, the footprints lead in, but they don't lead out. And they lead right next to standing next to the bed. Yes. And then they follow them back. And they lead up to a partially opened access point to the attic yeah like the the footprints start right in front of this closet and the closet like the entry to the attic is partially open so Mika's like i'm gonna go up there and katie's like no the fuck not you're like, yes what? which is the right thing to do don't but go to the attic mika as the lovely person that he is um completely ignores his girlfriend and instead goes into the attic and he sees something kind of tucked away into the corner so he decides to go up and get it, and it turns out to be a partially burnt photograph of Katie when she was eight years old. That was positioned directly over their bed. Yep. And she's freaking out. Because she doesn't think there's any reason why this photograph should exist. They th- she thinks that it should have burned down with the rest of their home, which it seems like it was in that fire because it's partially burnt. 
I'm getting like a little so creeped out. Just it's about really this. creepy. <laughs> That's the thing is, it's like, oh god, it's such a creepy movie. And Katie's like, okay, enough of this shit. Like, I'm calling the demonologist. He's like, okay, whatever. And he's still not super on board with he it, still but doesn't like, want he doesn't her stop to, her. But she does, and it turns out he's out of the country for another couple days. Yeah, so she decides that she's going to call Dr. Fredericks back because he's better than nobody. And so he's going to um, come back the next day. Yeah. But there's another. It's another bad night. It's another it's like bad night. They're slamming doors and things screeching in the house. And by this point, like, it's every night is some insane shit. Like, yeah, it's. Hard to remember exactly which night is which because it's just like clip after clip after clip of scary shit happening at night. Right. And by something you can't see. Exactly. So eventually Dr. Frederick shows back up and he literally like takes one step inside and he's like, nope, and leaves again. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's like, like, there's bad energy here. There's a, a demon. I'm doing more harm than good by being here right now because it's pissing it off and you don't want to piss it off. Yeah. And they're like, can we leave? And he's like, no, it's attached to you. It's not attached to this house. So it will follow you wherever you go. Yeah. And so they basically lose hope at this point and um yeah i mean katie cries a lot obviously she does and that night um the demon comes back into the room and pulls the covers off of her again and then grabs her by the leg and yanks her down the hallway and then the door slams shut behind it yes and you just hear her screaming mika 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 and mika wakes up and runs out and you don't really see what's going out on out in the hallway but he he gets her back inside eventually. Yeah. Um, and she has this huge bite mark on her back. Yes. And he is like, we got to fucking leave. She's like, she's also on board. Yeah. She's like, okay, I need just want to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't care where we go. I don't care if it falls. I just can't be in this house. He's like, great, let's do it. So he starts packing up the car and he gets it all ready and he goes back to her. He's like, okay, everything's packed. Let's go. And she's like, no, I want to stay. She's almost like semi-catatonic, like underneath the blanket. Yeah. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? What do you mean you want to stay? She's, she's like, like, it'll be better if we just stay. I think it'll be okay if we just stay. And he's like, I don't know, like, what the fuck's going on with you. But, like, sure, whatever the fuck. And he leaves. And then you hear her say, like, I think everything's going to be better now. But it's, like, two voices. Yeah. It's really creepy. And so the next night, they're in bed. She gets out of bed again. And she, she walks over and stands next to his side of the bed this time. But it's... This is when the covers blow off of him. Yeah. And I don't remember if it's before she gets out of bed or after she gets... I think it's after she gets out of bed. I think bed. it's, like, while she's walking over. Yeah. And so she just stares at him for, like, another... It's, like, another two hour. Just she's standing there and staring. And then she just goes downstairs. And then she screams his name like from downstairs. Like, blood-curdling scream. It's horrifying. And he gets up and he runs downstairs. And you just hear him screaming and then she stops screaming because she's just she doesn't just scream mika she screams like over and she's over like and over screaming, and over screaming and he runs down and then you hear him like make some sort of noise and they both stop screaming yeah and then you hear footsteps up the stairs which you've heard before but these are like heavier footsteps yeah. than they have been previously and then mika's body is just launched at the camera yeah and then she walks into the, and she's, like, hunched over and, like, her head's in an angle. She looks fucked up. Her shirt's super bloody. Yeah. She sort of, like, lurches into the room. She's covered in blood. She goes favorite, down next to his... Yeah. She, like, puts her hands down with her elbows pointing out and, like, sniffs him. Very yeah. kind of, like, animal-like. It's really well done. And then she, like, looks up at the camera and smiles and then, like, lunges towards the camera a little bit and her face looks fucked up. Yep. Like, it looks like Demonic. a demon. Yeah. And that's the end. Yeah, and then there's uh, some text. Um, there was intro text at the beginning thanking them for 
supplying the footage. And then at the end, there's a little epilogue that says that Mika's body was discovered by the police on October 11, 2006, and that Katie's whereabouts remain unknown. And then I was watching this on Amazon last night. It's free with stars if you haven't watched it recently and need a refresher. Um, And you don't see any credits or, like, names or anything like that. It just ends. Because, I mean, technically, there's already the credits at the beginning. They accurately credit the the actors in it. Um, But I guess in the director's cut, there's just a minute of black, and then eventually there's one credit slide. Nice. Because, like, they did redo some stuff for the um, once Paramount purchased, like, the rights to it. Yes, they did, a little bit, yeah. But, yeah. Um, All right, so... I do want to cite uh, our sources for this because um, we drew heavily from a few different sources. Uh, the first one is Ryan Turek's 2008 interview with Oren Pelly, which is available on comingsoon.net. Um, we have an article called The Haunted History of Paranormal Activity by John Horn for the LA Times, and another article from The Atlantic by Carl Franzen called The Freak Success of Paranormal Activity. That is where I used. There's also a bloody disgusting article um, about it as well, which was just like a news blip uh, that we referenced. And then and then there's also an article um, from Newsweek that we used for this as well, which uh, off the top of my head, I don't recall the name of. Um, so I guess I'll just post that in the comments on the, the Facebook page when Sounds we look that up. Um, so yeah, so let's get into how this movie was made, because it was essentially, uh, at the beginning at least, 100% Oren Pelly. Yeah, he moved into a new house and like heard like creaking and stuff like that in the house. Yeah. And he was like what if this isn't just the house and it's like scary demon shit yeah which is an interesting point and i gotta say when i was a kid i used to always be afraid that something evil was happening in my house so i think it's a very relatable thing And there was a ghost in my house growing up so i didn't have any ghosts i was just afraid of i was mostly afraid of murderers more than ghosts but still i think it kind of i was mostly afraid of ghosts and not murderers so interesting yeah i think that informs our uh horror tastes as adults makes sense yeah um and he, he doesn't think that it was anything supernatural, he said in the Newsweek article. Uh, I don't think it was anything supernatural. I think a lot of it was natural stuff, like the house settling. But that's what got me thinking, you know, what goes on when you're asleep. Um, and apparently he did a lot of research into demonology leading up to this. I don't... This is one of the funny things, because, like, I mean, I've been in this situation, like, for this podcast, where you do a lot of research on something, and then, like, when it comes time to actually, like, use it, you're like, oh, this is mostly background information that we don't need to tell them. I also <laughs> think that a lot of it was, like, he did a lot of research on just supernatural stuff in general and he was like oh demons do this specific thing true so i'm gonna go down the demonology path rather than making this a poltergeist or making it a haunting because demons are known for this right and it does work i mean there is a moment in the movie where she like has a book of demonology and she's like here is it turns out that it's demons and that part seemed a little bit weird to me because like obviously it's demons i'm pretty sure that the the guy had already told her it was a demon. I think he said it's a demon, and she was like, okay, cool, let me look up what I can find out about demons. And yeah. then she just, like, said more of, like, what the main guy said. Which I don't know if that was necessary, but I get it. You know, he did the research. He wanted to put it in there. That's totally understandable. But, I mean, considering this is 100% him, it was, like we said earlier, it was shot in his house on a seven-day schedule. Yes. Um, so it was shot on a very tight timeline. And he essentially did everything, including the editing of this movie. Yeah, he did the VFX, he did the sound, he did the actual, like, movie editing itself. Yeah. Um, and he taught himself how to do all that. He spent a year in pre-production just to figure out, like, to make sure he actually could do it. I mean, he also did the casting, which there are yeah. hundreds of people who applied for this. And originally it was supposed to be someone who was a survivor, like, finalist. Oh. Whose name was also Katie. Interesting. But he was worried she'd be too recognizable. That makes sense. 
Um, he draws inspiration from places like The Exorcist, which I think is very obvious because there's sort of this slow Super build obvious, yeah. into her being like really clearly possessed. And he actually saw The Exorcist when he was a kid and Aww. was like terrified by it and then didn't watch scary movies for like 20 years after that. And then made one of the most iconic yeah. horror movies. Apparently he even avoided watching Ghostbusters because he was too worried about it being scary because he was that's, that scarred by The Exorcist as a kid. Oh my God, that's adorable. Um, he also talks about being inspired by The Entity, which is a 1982 horror thriller about a woman who was haunted by a demonic presence in her home. So familiar territory. Yeah. Um, the Others, which we've talked about. It's a really good movie about like an unseen scary thing, but you don't... It's a lot about uncertainty and not knowing what's going on. Yeah, which is, and about not being able to feel at home in your home. Yeah. Um, and of course, The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Yeah. And same basic. Yeah. Um, and obviously as well, he does talk about how the um, Blair Witch Project was a big influence on him as well. That's very clear. But he talks a lot about liking movies that are, um, in his ComingSoon.net interview, he described it as movies that are subtle, not so over the top or gory. I like atmosphere and slow plot build. And that's all that this movie is. And that's a lot of um, what The Others is. It's a lot of what The Sixth Sense is. And he just wasn't a fan of movies that had too much special effects. And also... Special effects are expensive. They are. You cannot make a $15,000 movie with a lot of special effects. It's not possible. No, definitely not. Um, and he did always want it to be a home video movie. Like, that's what he saw this as from the very beginning. Um, because he, the way that he said it, and again, this is from the ComingSoon.net article, he said, it breaks the mental barrier when audiences see a regular film and become aware of the camera movements. They know a crew is there and that there are stars. When you strip all of this away, the audience thinks that they're seeing something with a higher degree of plausibility, which I think is really what makes this so scary. And that's something that um, the Blair Witch did too. Yeah. And he actually took some cues, and we'll get to this more later, but in terms of like marketing and going to like press events, he never took the cast with him to press events. That made it feel more real they wouldn't seem like movie stars exactly and i do think it's so interesting that like i and we definitely talked about this as well with the blair witch but um there sort of is that acknowledgement that like you can see a movie that is very scary that is a horror movie and still understand that it's a movie the whole time you know you can suspend that disbelief enough but you always know that like in the exorcist there are very obvious camera movements right it's a great movie but you're never going to leave there thinking, like, I bet that actually happened to her. Because you know Linda Blair's a real person in the real world. You know she exists. You're not going to watch House of Wax and be concerned about the actual fate of Jared Padalecki and Paris Hilton. Right. You know that they were fine. You know who those people are. You can tell everything looks slick and there's, you know, an outsider <laughs> perspective. Looks slick. Well, I guess yes, in House of Wax it literally looks slick. See, there you are with the puns coming on through. It's it's happening, everyone. We knew it would happen. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it, it looks polished, it looks finished, it looks like a real movie movie, and so there's a, a different level of, like, feeling like you could have found this in a box in your basement, sinister style, and, like, it could be Ooh. something that's really happened there, you know? There's a level of fear that you don't get in those other movies. Definitely. And another reason why, even though Sinister is very scary, just watching Ethan Hawke's face for, like, that long. Right, you're like, that's Ethan Hawke, and I know who he is. Like, I've seen him in things, and I remember him from stuff, and I don't know. You don't know... You don't know who Katie Featherston is. You don't know who Mika Sloat is. But, like, you, they look like people you know, you know? Yeah. They look like your neighbors or whatever. Uh, he also talks about how the rise in popularity of reality TV um, has gotten people used to seeing the way that, like, the naturalistic camera work is and, like, knowing that the camera is there and it's acknowledged. I mean, think about this was shot in 2006. That was, like, the height of a lot of these 
reality TV shows. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was everywhere. Like, reality TV is still big, but, like, 2000s was, like, good lord. It was nonstop. And then we did mention that he found inspiration from the Blair Witch, but he also talked about the fact that, like, you can't have recognizable talent in one of these found footage movies if you actually want it to feel real. Right. And he also talks about how, like, people would try to make found footage movies where it's like, we'll just, like, leave the camera running and it's, like, no big deal, whatever. Um, But that's not all that it takes. You have to pay attention to detail still. You have to have a great cast who can really act naturally. Um, And he said that he honestly would not have made this movie if he hadn't found people with the chemistry that Katie Featherston and Mika Sloat had because he felt like you really authentically believed that you were seeing people who'd known each other for years when you saw them interact with each other. And I know that Pele said that he kept the cast and location like really small in order to create a sense of claustrophobia. I have a hypothesis that it was also to keep it cheap. Oh, yeah, obviously. I think it's like a benefit of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But I mean, it does work well where you never really see outside the house and it does feel like they're trapped in this house. Yeah. And I mean, Katie is supposed to be an English student. She doesn't have a job. So it's not like they can afford to like go out and do crazy shit, you know? Right. I mean, Mika's a day trader. But in the director's cut, he says some, there's actually a scene where he talks about how um, he, like, just lost a bunch of money and was worried about getting fired and stuff like oh, that. Oh, okay. um, It was supposed to show that they're, like, external forces that were at also acting on their stressful situation. She was worried about failing a class. Um, but that was taken out. That makes a lot of sense. Also, apparently, Oren Paley, prior to this, was a uh, day trader for a little while as well. So, that's a little, little truth in television there. Yeah. Um, he also talks about how, like, when the demonologist wasn't available, like, obviously, in part, that's to keep it from, like, needing another actor to come in and, like, increase your budget. But also, he'd seen movies like Poltergeist where, like, everyone is expecting for the, like, haunted house or possession or whatever that, like, a team of experts will come in and they'll set up their cameras and they'll do their test. And, I mean, we saw it in, um... The Conjuring? In The Conjuring. We saw it in Poltergeist. It's in a lot of these movies. It was in The Orphanage. Like, it happens a lot. It was so, in um, kind of an admirable horror. Yeah, a little bit. So it's sort of like, you know what you're expecting, and he knows what you're expecting. And so rather than feed into that, he's going to be like, no, like, it's too bad for even that. They don't even have that option. This movie almost felt like if The Conjuring took place in 2006 and Ed and Lorraine Warren weren't available to be contacted. So like, well, shit, let's just film it ourselves. And then in The Conjuring, you have the mom like try and kill everyone, but she doesn't succeed because the Warrens are there. Yeah. In this one, Katie gets possessed and successfully kills yeah, everyone. There's not always somebody there to save you. And this shows that. Exactly. Um, in terms of the shooting process, like we talked about, it was a tight timeline, always shooting. Um... There was not a script for this. So all of this dialogue is just them talking. Technically, there's a script, but it wasn't written until after the movie was shot. Because <laughs> he did eventually go back and like write it as a script. Right. I mean, I guess you need to have that. <laughs> but uh, when they were actually shooting, he like gave them an outline of, like, here's what you're going to do. Just interact the way that you would interact. Yeah, and he didn't tell them what was going to happen all the time. No, so like he would say at night, and he would just be like, good night, guys, and then just like make terrible noises downstairs, and they would kind of react naturally. Ugh. Which sounds horrifying, but also it did a great job. Yeah, and so because this was filmed in literally seven days, they were just, like, constantly filming. Yeah. And this film was edited from over 70 hours. Yeah, and he basically edited it while they were shooting it. Yeah. So he would, like, show them the visual effects, like, as soon as they'd wrap the scene, essentially. And... The plot wasn't fully defined yet because there wasn't a script. And so they actually kind of put together a lot of the plot pieces, like put together the order it was all going to go in. 
as they were filming it as well. Which makes sense. And he did a great job editing it after the fact because it really does feel like it builds in a really cohesive and coherent way, which is cool. Yeah. Now, the real fucking wonder moment of this whole movie is getting this thing to distribution. Oh my god, he spent so much time trying to get this movie seen. He truly did. So he submitted it first to the Screen Fest uh, Festival in 2007, and it was accepted, and it was screened there, and people liked it. Unfortunately, somebody, an assistant at CAA, Creative Artists Agency, saw this movie and was like, yeah, we gotta get involved with that. So... Pelly was signed to CAA, and then they started looking for somebody to distribute the film. And that's where Jason Blum comes in. Yes. Now, Jason Blum didn't get him the distribution deal exactly. I wouldn't be surprised if his name being somewhat attached, though. I think it was made probably it happen. Yeah. What he did was he and his producing partner, Stephen Schneider, they liked it, and they decided that they wanted to work with him to make it a better film. So they sort of, like, trimmed it down a little bit, gave him some notes, they tidied it up. Um, so they submitted it to Sundance, and Sundance is like, I don't think so. And then they also submitted it to something called Slamdance. Which said yes. Yes. And it still didn't really go anywhere after that. Yeah. Eventually, one of these DVDs that CAA and Jason Blum and everybody was sending out, desperately trying to find somebody, went to DreamWorks, where a, uh, an executive named Ashley Brooks saw it. And she was like, this shit is awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show it to my boss, Adam Goodman, to watch it. Adam Goodman watched it and he was like, you're right, this shit is awesome. He encouraged Steven Spielberg to watch it, which is a funny... Steven Spielberg didn't really have anything to do with getting this movie. That's not true. Steven Spielberg actually rewrote the ending for them. Oh shit, you're right. So um, the ending originally had... Katie kill Mika and then go and sit for literally days like rocking back and forth in the bedroom until like the police came in and like shot her or something like yeah. that. Um, or the friend found her, something like that. And Spielberg was like, you know, it'd be scarier. And he came up with the actual ending that they used. Despite the fact that he didn't think that the original ending was scary enough, he was so afraid of this fucking movie. <laughs> because apparently... After he watched it, he accidentally got locked in his bedroom because, like, his door malfunctioned and, like, locked behind him and he couldn't get out of it. He had to call a locksmith. So he brought the DVD back to DreamWorks in a trash bag. And he was like, I do not fucking want this thing (laughs) in my home. I'm not interested in having it here, but it is terrifying and we should make it. Yes. Uh, And a lot of this is from the LA Times article that I mentioned earlier. Um, And DreamWorks was like, I mean, if Spielberg, Spielberg likes it, then we should do it, right? Yeah. Seems logical. Um... And they decided that they would buy it. But the understanding was that they would remake it. Pelly would still direct. Yeah, but they were planning on redoing the whole movie with a big budget. They had no intention of keeping the same exact version. Right. But Bloom and Pelly, they knew that it was good the way that it was. And the way that Bloom phrased it is, like, you watch it in your bedroom and it can look like your kid made it. You watch it with an audience and it's an entirely different experience. And then I think my... I think I said something else about this whole thing was my favorite earlier. I changed my mind. This is my favorite. (laughs) But they put together a screening, right? And people just started walking out of the screening. And so Goodman was like, oh, shit, they all hate this movie. Nope. He stopped somebody in the lobby and was like, why are you leaving? Like, what's wrong with it? And he was, the the person was like, "I, I can't watch this movie. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And he was like, oh! They were literally leaving because it was so scary. Because okay. it is, like, weirdly scary. It's really intense. And so they decided to redo the ending like Spielberg suggested. Um, but this is actually around the time that DreamWorks and Paramount split. So it kind of got Yeah, it got shelved. Tech. And it didn't look like it was likely to get made. So, like, the um, the screening happened in 2008. And, it, like we said, didn't get released until 2009. Like late 2009. But what happened was that Adam Goodman became the president of Paramount. 
and was like, all right, we're going to make this movie. Hey, got this good movie. <laughs> and, I mean, it made Paramount a lot of money. It did. So once the movie was actually, like, scheduled to be back on the release slate, that's when the fun marketing campaign came in. And I will let Maddie yeah. steer on a lot of this. So this marketing campaign wasn't so much like, here's a trailer, watch this movie. It was all about audience reactions to the movie. So it'd show, like, little shots from the like the movie or whatever, but then it would shoot to the audiences reacting to what's going on. And that's what they were trying to sell it with. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Cause like the movie itself, if you take bits of it out of context, it's not a scary. No, it's not. And, um, it was originally shown like in college towns too. So like they did it in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, they didn't like Boulder, Colorado, um, a whole bunch of cities where it's just like big college towns that aren't like huge metropolitan areas. Right. Um, but then what they did, and I literally remember doing this is they said like, Hey, do you want this movie in your town? Demand it and like ask for it to be shown at your local theater. And so they were able to gauge audience interest by doing that. And this was, since this was in 2009, like Facebook had been opened up to like a wider population two or three years before that. Um, there weren't very many viral digital campaigns. And yeah. This was it was the definitely first like new grounds. They, uh, Paramount said that if the eventful page got a million requests, that they would make it a nationwide movie. And they did that. Like, it got to the million requests. And it only took five weeks of it playing within the U.S. for it to become the highest grossing R-rated thriller of the 2000s. Like, it really is like... So, the the screenings that were like, request this and then it will come to your town, that started on... Uh, October 2nd, 2009. By October 3rd, the movie had made $500,000. Not on a wide release. Just in those cities where it was particularly specifically requested to be screened. And then Paramount was like, okay, we'll go wider with that. Like, it was like every step of the way, it like proved itself to be like something that audiences really wanted to see. And so they did a lot of their marketing on Facebook and stuff, right? Like they use social media really well. What's interesting is this is actually how Facebook also blew up is it was like at a couple select colleges and other colleges had to ask for it and then had to keep like getting bigger and bigger. And it was like this exclusive thing that not everyone got and not everyone in terms of paranormal activity, they're like, not everyone can handle this because it's so scary. <laughs> and they did a really good job of making people, like, want it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. Because it is, like, literally when you watch it, it's, like, a good movie. But, like, the, just the cult of the experience around it at the time is, like, it's hard to explain unless you remember it happening. Like, unless you were there for it. it it's not, I mean, found footage and even the paranormal um, activity franchise at this point in time has become so normalized that like it's really hard to understand how huge this was when it came out you know yeah it was insane and like found footage like people knew about it but it wasn't as big right and now since then there's been a million and a half found footage movies like you can go onto any movie streaming site and search horror and you'll find a bunch of bad ones you'll find some good ones too yeah but probably more not good than good. It's the same thing that um, Pelly talked about after Blair Witch Project. It's like people see it and they're like, oh, that's easy to do. I'll just do that. But like, it has to be good to to work. Like, yeah. great movies like this come out every once in a while. And I think there was an, uh, an interview or a quote by um, Jason Blum that was like, every five years, there's a movie that gets made for a nickel and blows up and everybody goes and sees it. But like, it's not common and it doesn't happen very often. And it is sort of like catching lightning in a bottle. And, like, this did it. And not a lot of other movies have that in them. Yeah, no, it's they true. They really don't. 
Um, and the LA Times article. So the LA Times article that we've mostly been quoting from here came out like like right when this movie was about to come out. And it ends with a quote that I think is hilarious. While it's highly unlikely that paranormal activity can come close to the success of 1999's Blair Witch Project, a $35,000 production that grossed almost $250 million worldwide, Pelly and Bloom hope that the film can teach the old dogs of Hollywood a new trick. And it might not have made $250 million, but like Maddie mentioned earlier, most profitable film in history. That's I mean, you can't touch that. Not only that, but it had five sequels. Yeah. While The Blair Witch had, like, two mediocre ones. And listen, the sequels to um, Paranormal Activity are not great movies. They're not as good as the first one, from my understanding. I haven't either, but, like... I kind of want to watch them now. They all have higher budgets. They do. I think the next one starts at $3 million. And then it's five million, five million. They also got rid of Pelly. Like he was not involved. He was a producer technically, but he wasn't actively involved in the making of it. Kind of the same thing that happened with the Saw franchise. Yeah. You get the great one or the the best one the first time around, and then after that they're like, We'll just put somebody else in there and it's you know. To be fair, Pelly went on to make two other movies. So um, I think it was the second movie that he made. It was called Area 51. And it was all about like from the director of Paranormal Activity and the producer of The Purge because it was produced by Jason Blum. It was made for $5 million and made $7,000 because it didn't receive a wide release. And it was so bad. That's like a reverse Paranormal Activity. Yep. Yikes. Least profitable movie? Oof, it's got to be up there. Down there? Around there. In, in that vicinity, but it's supposed to be just rough. And there were a lot of reshoots and, like, just the whole production of it went horribly. Yeah. So, like, even though Pelly did this, like, amazing thing, you can't always repeat that. Yeah. Also, he's given too much money. That's true. And also, aliens. Aliens very rarely go well. You can't do Unless a low budget Unless you're, like, Ridley movie. Scott. It doesn't work. You cannot do low well, budget It was five aliens. million. It wasn't low budget. It's, yeah. I guess he needed a low budget. Sometimes you need, like, the creative constraints on you, you know, where, like, you can't just do whatever you want. It's, like, why... Cough George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to have somebody who says no, or we don't have the budget for that, or, like, fuck you, why would you, you do that? You have someone pushing back, not just, like, oh, man, you did this really cool thing, and it was all you. Go do this other really cool thing, because having those restraints are good for you sometimes. Exactly. It makes you think more creatively, and it keeps you from doing stupid shit like Gungans. Or Area 51. I think he made a third movie, too. Yeah, I... Yeah. I think that one also didn't do well. But you know what? He's cleaning up on those uh Yeah, he made a 2012 TV. movie called The Chernobyl Diaries. Oh, I've heard of that one. I don't know if it was good or not. It made money. Okay, that's good. It was made for a million dollars, made 37. That's not bad at all. I actually think that was before Area 51. So Area 51 was the third one. So, you know, he made two gotcha. movies that made money... And then made one that didn't. Yeah. All right, Maddie. So what are we doing next week? So before I reveal the movie, I'm going to give a little bit of backstory. I have a habit of watching the most disturbing horror movies while I am home alone. We've talked about it before on this podcast. We have. There's evidence. I watched The Babadook by myself at Don't home. Don't do it. I watched Goodnight Mommy by myself in my it's apartment. the wrong move. I also watched Next Time's movie by myself at home. Sure did. And that movie is Jacob's Ladder. Yes. Which is all about, like, I think it's the Vietnam War and PTSD. You know, they're actually remaking it. I did hear that. Yeah. Uh, I think they're making it about the Iraq War this time, though. Yeah, and it's like brothers, and one of them is, like, fucked up and experiencing it. So it's, like, a little more 
more characters and a slightly different plot. I think it's going to kind of be a Suspiria situation where it's like the same basic concept, but like a different. It sounds like it because I think if you have two central characters, it kind of will ruin a little bit of what's going on. Yeah. Um, Because there's a lot of like talks about like potential hallucinations, potential drugs. Um, There's a lot of biblical references. This movie is a hell of a trip. I, for one, am extremely excited because I love weird psychological stuff. And you haven't seen it before. I've never seen it. I'm coming into this inexperienced. I cannot wait. Um, and it is really a movie that has inspired a lot of visuals that you see now. It was actually a huge inspiration for the visuals in Silent Hill. Very cool. Um, if you haven't seen it, just search the hospital scene and watch that on YouTube and you'll understand the movie that this is. Nice. But it's going to be a fun time. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I'm really excited. I'm going to watch it. I watched it like a year ago. I'm pumped. I cannot wait to talk about this with you next time. It'll be a great time. It will. And until then, uh, drive safe. Come up with more puns than I did this episode. Yeah, kind of lacking. I know. I'm disappointed in myself. Get it together. Get it together. I'm trying to think of one now, and I just can't. I'm well, that's fine. Um, if a demonologist flees your home, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's over. Yeah, I think you're just done. Yeah, that's it. But to be fair, if you believe that you're done, you're going to have a worse time than if you don't. That's true. So just stay positive, you guys. Keep the hope. Keep that demon out. All right. Uh, we love you, and we will talk to you soon. Have a nice night. Mwah. Bye. Bye.